This podcast concerns the English uh, uh, science fiction writer, and especially writer for television, Nigel Neal. That's spelled K as in Kappa, N as in Nero, E-A-L-E, Nigel Neal. And Nigel Neal was born in 1922 and died in 2006. And the podcast is not only about a most unusual and interesting and relevant English writer for television. It's about the significance and weight of a solid understanding of the human condition, which traditional Christians would denominate original sin, an understanding of original sin in relationship to the world in which we live, which gives a writer like Nigel Neal, or gave a writer like Nigel Neal, his ability to prognosticate, his extraordinary ability, parallel to the ability of the American science fiction writer Philip Wiley, to predict the future. Because both of these men had a sour view of the human predicament. Uh, Neither was a believer. Nigel Neal was an atheist, hotly anti-superstitious, and probably would have been cheerleading the current new atheism, as it's often called. And uh, Wiley became, partly through reasons of his own background and partly from experiences he had of the Christian church growing up and later, a tremendous, uh, uh, really what we'd have to call uh, agnostic, verging on atheism. And yet these two men, uh, together I think with George Orwell, whose book 1984 remains to this day a letter-perfect study of an emerging future, which is all around us today, and people just don't, they don't want to say it enough. It's too, it's too painful to read 1984 today in 2011. But <clears throat> the power of Nigel Neal's vision, which I'm going to talk about briefly, because I think you'll find that uh, it's very worthy. It's it's also very exciting and very beautifully done and highly creative and highly inspired, just as Wiley at his best is. They understood the human world, and therefore they were able to uh, create a picture of the future that was astonishingly perceptive and brilliant, and we would also call, to use current language, dystopian or dystopic, terribly... Um, depressed, you might say, view, although I don't think that's the right thing to say at all, because there's an affirmation uh, at the ending, certainly of Nigel Neal's climactic work, which is we know as Quatermass, the conclusion from, let me see, 1979, but I'll talk about that. And when you see that the best way to understand what's going to happen is on the basis of what has happened, the best way to understand humanity in the future is to know a little bit about humanity in the past and in the present then you at least are (coughs) not susceptible to making the leaping, you know, the leaping gnomes, to quote uh, Eric Burden. Um, What was that called? Spill the Wine, when he first sang with the wonderful group War. You, you, you won't become a leaping gnome, uh, speaking nonsense and holding up uh, ideas that are only going to come crumbling down to the tremendous disaster of those who hold them, believe them, or are fooled into believing them. And so at least we have something here, and I'm going to conclude with a footnote on messianism and the whole um, picture in uh, Christian theology of the second coming of Christ, but that's just going to be a footnote. Now, building the kingdom also. Now, uh, Nigel Neal, uh, let me give you a little rundown of his works and why the ones that I think are important are important. Now, most of these are available on video. In fact, All of them are available on video, although not in this country. Um, And a couple of them, the most important one, almost, uh, that he made in 1964 was wiped. That's the word in the trade that day. The British were so 
Pennywise Pound Foolish, they were so f- chintzy about buying new videotape that they would wipe or wipe the images off, purify used videotape routinely in order to use it again. I mean, it's the most ridiculous thing. And many, many, many important contributions in early television in England were wiped or destroyed programmatically and explicitly without anyone thinking it was wrong. They must have, I don't know what, they must have thought it was like, anyway, whatever they did, they did it. And so one of uh, Neil's most important works, which I'll talk about, was wiped. But the script lasts, and I've seen it. The script is actually appended to the British BFI, British Film Institute, uh, DVD, uh, DVD of the Stone Tape from 1972. So you can read it there, but you'll have to go to England to buy it, and you'll have to have an English player to play it. But um, let me uh, talk about uh, Neil's uh, work. His um, first uh, insight that you could tell he was onto something was in 1954 when he wrote up Orwell's 1984 for British television, the BBC or the Beeb or Ante. Don't they call it Ante over there? They used to. A U N T I E. Whoever slew Ante Rue. Anyway, his production, and I've seen a section of it, but only a section because I believe it was wiped, to use the word. Um, 1984, starring Peter uh, Cushing, was abs- as Winston Smith, was absolutely a horrifying, certainly for British television in 54, and even more so for us had it been shown here. It was a horrifying descent into the actual uh, core of the vision of the future that Orwell believed would happen based upon human nature as he understand it, politics as it had evolved, especially in communist countries, and technology as he knew it was happening with television and monitoring people and Skyping today and all these things. So we have in 1984 a very, very trenchant and rather uh, on, the, on the down uh, side, if that's possible, and it is, as as opposed to the Edwin O'Brien, Edwin O'Brien version, which is a little bit less completely down. You can't avoid it in you seeing uh, the 1954 um, Nigel Neal scripted 1984 in which the world's uh, horror uh, in the future is so cataclysmically upsetting. And he then uh, began his most famous works, which were uh, three uh, television series in very cheaply done sci-fi, except for the third, on a, a scientist whom he created named Bernard Quatermass played by various actors, most famously Andre Morell in England, but they brought in an American, the Hammer Studios, to play it, Brian Don Levy, um, in the first two of the Hammer horror versions of this. But the original Nile, uh, Nigel uh, Neal script is can be seen on YouTube, and I saw it years ago, and it's available on video for many years now. And it's called uh, Quatermass 1 and Quatermass 2, and it uh, is, um, uh, let me tell you what, he, what he's really doing. What the, the conceit here is that a scientist discovers, um, and this conceit is most powerfully stated, and it is really excellent. It is first-class television called Quatermass and the Pit, made in 1958 and 59, or broadcast then, and it was done live on sets in England, but the last one was done with quite a bit of um, money put into it, a good budget, and the concept is that a scientist, using rational means, uncovers an alien or scientifically explicable phenomenon which explains superstitions that have grown up around it, and this uh, comes uh, very uh, strongly to bear, and I'm just going to focus on a couple of Neil's uh, great accomplishments. Quatermass in the Pit. Uh, see the um, television show, uh, although it was also made into a movie in the 60s, and the um, 
Quatermass and the Pit uh, is the story of a scientist who discovers that the origin of the understanding of Satan and demons in the human world is actually from Mars, and that actually aliens who crash-landed here thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago in London who sort of looked like insects, planted in the collective race memory or collective unconscious of the human race, a a belief that uh, the devil and evil was objectified in a horned being. And not only this, but we find out more uh, disturbingly that the Martians had escaped because they were killing one another. There was a kind of holocaust of self-immolation going on in Mars. And it's it's all stated. You never see any of this except very, very obliquely and uh, uh, and very brilliantly done, and uh, that uh, they brought their racial antipathy, their self-destructive character, their war demon, they brought it to hundreds of thousands of years ago to England and sort of uh, evolved a kind from a, from a monkey. They took a monkey or a quadruped and created a, a sort of let it evolve, a little like 2001, into a biped, but with these racial uh, memories of horrific violence and the origin of war and aggression, not to mention superstition and dualism, is all to be found in a racial memory based upon an alien landing hundreds of thousands of years earlier, which Professor Quatermass discovers in connection with a, an archaeological find that is found during a, uh, some digging for the London Underground after the destruction and the Blitz of World War II. Now, this is brilliant. This takes a current situation, the urban renewal and building of underground uh, the subway in uh, London after World War II and brings it into a uh, the whole question of where does um, dualism uh, lie, where, what is the origin of the libidinous, violent, aggressive urge to destroy and possess and dominate power, what is called power today, where does it come from? It comes from Mars and the Martians are really us or vice versa. Now at the end of Quatermass in the Pit and this is what I want to major on. Uh, the character, Dr. Quatermass, sort of gives a speech. It's kind of one of these speeches like at the end of Psycho when the expert gives away the deal and uh, sort of explains everything. But it's very moving. It's actually like a sermon. And if you see it with Andre Morel in the 1959 final episode, I've, I've seen it many times. It's gripping. There is a vicar in the background. The BBC insisted that there be a religious figure in the background. But Nigel Neal later on said that the sermon was uh, intentionally done by a scientist. Isn't that modern? You know, today we could see it rather than a clergyman, but it is a sermon. And what um, Andre Morel says is, unless mankind or humanity, um, and this passes political correct muster even today when you see it, unless humanity becomes in contact with the primal urges and instincts that have created this terrible world of terrible, shocking violence and control and anger, I mean, internet anger, I was reading some threads today relevant to some issue that I was interested in, and it was Un-incroyable. I mean, it was more than usual. It was like obscenities. It was why you have to edit these things. It wasn't just the usual Christian blogs or political blogs of everybody hating each other and lashing out at conceptual abstractions. But it was so angry, this particular thread, that I couldn't believe my ears. It had to do with uh, something in the whole uh, sort of values-oriented uh, voter issue today. And Oh, my gosh, left and right, hot, killing, caustic, sulfuric, a storm of rage. 
an emeute. Well, Quatermass um, uh, in the Pit says that unless humanity can get control of its cosmically implanted, Martian-engendered, created and implanted libidinal anger, unless we can come in contact with it and realize who what we are capable of doing, the world will destroy itself again. And that's the last word, and it's very powerful, with stirring music in 1959's BBC drama Quatermass in the Pit. Well, um, he had this amazing ability to... Under- he understood the human uh, situation. He was down. He was from the Isle of Man. He, he'd been grown up an Anglican and gone to Anglican schooling. He had a real attitude about the Church of England and official Christianity and probably Christianity as a whole. <clears throat> and uh, he um, brought, however, his uh, uh, distemper, his understanding of human nature, his real penetration, which is shared by someone like Orwell and Wiley in their contemporary and slightly earlier way, he brought this into this television play. Now, he did another, he did a number of, uh, he, he had one other great idea, uh, which uh, always is to say that where there is a superstitious phenomenon, there is a scientific explanation. So in addition to his very, um, uh, very shockingly negative, I would call it accurate view of the human situation, and I'll mention three other, two other examples of it, he had one other great sort of strong point, Nigel Neal did. He <clears throat> had this idea that you could, if you could take this sort of almost a formula of trying to explain a ghost story or a supernatural phenomenon by scientific, some kind of scientific explanation, a little bit like Outer Limits did, but much better, in my opinion, Nigel Neal, because it's deeper. Um, you had something. So he, um, in, he, uh, he, he, he tried to explain um, ghosts in a wood or woods in, a, uh, in the mid-18th century, late 18th century, in a, a teleplay called The Road, The Road, which was later on wiped. But I've read the script, and in it the squire and the vicar and the local doctor are discussing at the pub, why are there these terrible sounds that we keep hearing out in 1770? in this wood, this haunted wood or forest uh, near us. Well, it turns out that the road is the motorway and that the sounds that the people in 1770 are hearing are the sounds of a mammoth traffic jam on the motorway that is caused by people alarmingly trying to get out of London because of a nuclear uh, uh, rocket headed their way in a worldwide nuclear war. And <clears throat> all the sounds are people screaming and running for their lives as they're blocked in a traffic jam on the motorway up in Bark- uh, up in Bedfordshire or someplace like that or Hunting or whatever it is, and uh, Buckinghamshire, we now a heavily developed motorway, and finally they hear this huge blast, which is the atom bomb, and what they are hearing back in as ghosts in 1770 is in fact a scream of pain from the future due to some kind of a kind of kind of resonant metal or something like that that happens to be underneath the escarpment on which this wood is uh, located. He did the same thing in his script for H.G. Wells' First Men on the Moon in 1964, where the selenite or moon culture was completely destroyed by the cold, the slight flu that had been carried by one of the early Victorian English odd uh, astronauts played by Lionel Jeffries, and the whole moon culture had been destroyed because of a man's cold. So you see, uh, there are two things. There's there's the reality of the human inward demon of uh, aggressive libidinal id, ego, and which causes uh, all ultimately which is rooted in the Martians of hundreds of thousands of years ago. But you couldn't write this without having a view of human nature, which was realistic after the wars we're in. And are we any different from the people in 1948, when you look around you. And uh, he got this also in his understanding of Orwell. And then he, because he understood how things go, 
because he understood how things go, he did in 1968 a truly disturbing British serial, I think it was four episodes, but I may have that. It may just be three, called, and don't worry about the title, it's called the, um, I believe it's called The Year of the Sex Olympics. Now, I've seen it, and what it is in 1968, it's a a prediction of the uh, pornography as a kind of cultural sedative coupled with reality television ending in publicly staged murders. Uh, What happens is that to keep the population down, some kind of uh, council in England, uh, uh, has uh, live pornography on television all the time. So people's sex drive is absorbed by watching images of people having sex, just like them, who look just like them on the uh, television. And that kind of keeps everybody's libido down so they don't uh, populate the earth. Obviously, this was before the days of the kind of birth control we know about. But in any event, but what happens is in this reality television show, which is kind of live action, Pornography, which Wiley had also predicted would come, you have people want more and more and more. They're not just, they want more. So the producer says, let's plant a young couple on an island in the middle of nowhere and not tell them that we're photographing them and have a little child of 10. And then let's put a, put a, an escaped psychotic murderer from prison, Dartmoor prison on the island and uh, see what happens and film the whole thing with hidden cameras, which happens. And the, they're all killed by this terrible murderer and everybody cheers and thinks it's the greatest thing and it's the beginning of a new cultural trend. Well, today, you know, uh, people um, all say, my gosh, weird. how did a guy in 1968 understand the nature first of screen pornography and B, live pornography, and B, how did he understand that the sort of natural movement of this kind of videoing might lead to the unleashing of the murderous and rage impulse? So, you know, before you know it, you'll have people hanged on screen and burned at the stake. Well, that's what he did. He showed it. And uh, if you thought this has been done later, it was done by Videodrone and by all sorts of other people have done this idea. But Neil was definitely the first to do it without any question, uh, just as he was the first to do the Martians thing, which I think is actually in a movie with... Uh, I forget his name, uh, one of those Red Planet Mars exploration movies from the 90s when the same thing happens. It turns out that Earth was colonized by, colonized by Mars before we even knew it type of thing. So you have the uh, his view. He's able to predict it because he understands the nature of sex. He understands the nature of violence and the instinct in human nature to destroy and the Malthusian impulse. And he also knows that technology is always going to be moving forward because we are, as Wiley said, a magic animal. Well, uh, two other things about him and then something else. Um, you need to also go onto YouTube and see the somewhat dated, but nevertheless, it's a great idea, 1972 <clears throat> English. Uh, I don't think this was done for the BBC, but I may be wrong. The 1972, um, um, I think it's a four-part uh, series directed by Peter Sazdy, who did all sorts of Hammer Horror films not uh, right around that time, called The Stone Tape. And this uh, is a uh, was later sort of replicated in a, a script that um, Neil did not want to be um, credited for in a John Carpenter movie called Halloween 3, Season of the Witch from 1982. That's it. And that is an amazing uh, thing. But what you need to see, go on YouTube because it's not available any other way, but it is in full available. And I saw one section of it in 1973. Um, Actually, it was early 1974. They repeated it. And I remember one section of it with the red eyes. But Stone Tape is about a ghost uh, in a a, a Victorian and then a Jacobean ghost of of a serving girl in a... um, 
in a sort of old house in England where a, a scientific and television crew is doing some work on a some kind of work on on uh, uh, communications or Japanese digital technology, and they come upon uh, a stone, a deeply buried stone, which seems to have the ability to retain within it the kind of life being, especially of people who've died uh, criminally or have been murdered, and somehow the the tape of these terrible events has been uh, retained in this stone and they're actually able to copy it and to um, take it down and to see it And uh, but underneath this sort of stone an ancient stone like a Stonehenge type of stone with these some kind of property of, of, of retaining images they discover that the ultimate images underneath the images they think they see is very early very very archaeological a little Lovecrafty, not supernatural, but some kind of Cro-Magnon or Earth creatures, or maybe from some some awful id-type creatures are underneath, or, or have been kept at the lowest level of the storage, you might say, in the stone tape. And uh, with Jane Asher, that wonderful former girlfriend of um, Paul McCartney. Jane Asher meets them, shall we just say. See the stone tape. Now I want to finish. Um, uh, this discussion of uh, Nigel Neal by talking about the Quatermass Conclusion from 1979, which is much better than people give it credit for. He had always wanted to write as an old man a kind of a screenplay and a novel, which he did, or a teleplay, of Bernard Quatermass as an old man, not a man in his 40s or early 50s, but a man in his 70s or mid-70s. What would he be up to? And he predicts, Nigel Neal does, a dystopian world again, especially in which the young and the old are highly alienated and the old all sort of have to kind of hide out in kind of secret pension, pension. Old age pensioners have to sort of hide themselves from the really mean, angry, but somewhat clueless youth who have taken over the world. And yet they really, the youth are rudderless and need help. And what happens is the the youth in this future dystopian world uh, who are sort of all around are, um, are flower children. What are today called New Age Travelers, and uh, he really did understand in 1979 what people began to call in the 90s the New Age Travelers, and there's been a big incident regarding them recently uh, with gypsies, Romneys, Romneys, and New Age Travelers uh, in a housing estate in southern England. That's a look it up. But um, the Quatermass conclusion has these young people gathering, sort of flower children, gathering by the hundreds of thousands all over England, uh, sort of in, in around stone circles, that is Stonehenge. They all gather in places like Stonehenge or the Avebury Ring in Wiltshire, which we were just near recently. Actually, it was the Rollwright Stones. I think we were like within about a, a half a mile of the Rollwright Stones, which are another ancient uh, Neolithic stone circle. And they gather there, and a great light, whenever they gather there, a great light comes upon them, and they disappear. And they believe that they are being translated or beamed to some idyllic new place, But whatever, the, because whenever the beam stops, there's nobody there. It's just a stone circle. Nobody's gone. Well, Bernard Quatermass, played by John Mills, and I think it's a good performance, but some people don't think it's convincing. I disagree. See it. It's on YouTube. It's called, I think it's just called Quatermass, and it's 1979 with John Mills. And he finally understands that what's really happening is these young people are being harvested for whatever gruesome purpose by some kind of alien 
intelligence or planet uh, that has the that is terrible far far off in the interstellar space and that every time the beam comes down to one of these stone circles ring round stones or ring stone or whatever it's called the they all sing their sort of rhymes and they're all kind of flower children you know like they were in the 70s I knew those people. We lived with them. And uh, they disappear to a better world, but it's not. They're being harvested, and whatever's happening to them is being happening. It's a horrible, horrible thing. And he discovers this, and he gets the idea, Bernard Quatermass, that he needs to save his granddaughter, who's become one of the children. So he, his children being dead, it's his granddaughter he's focused on. So he creates an atom bomb to blow up the next time they come. He knows when the next beam is going to come. He sets it up in a delightfully Victorian kind of observatory with all this modern equipment but in the middle of a Victorian building it's really classic Neil and uh, uh, the the beam is going to come down and something very bad happens at the end that causes him to have to to, to sacrifice to, to, it's a remarkable and famous ending I'm not spoiling it because it's been out since 1979 and uh, in the very fine documentary which you can also YouTube from the BBC it's a BBC documentary in three parts called the Neil K-N-E-A-L-E tapes in which they interview Nigel Neil with excerpts from all this and all of this is there it's brilliant but i've seen the stuff in full in any event in most cases and the quatermass conclusion has an act of tremendous sacrifice and powerful reconciliation of the generations as an old man is required to save the young clueless generation and england and the people are saved and there's also a subtext about judaism which is actually very interesting because nigel neal had married and met a woman long before who was uh, an escapee from the holocaust a jewish woman who'd escaped from vienna and so he was sensitive to that theme even in 1979 and so in, in the quatermass conclusion long before it became a huge theme in this country that is to say in the media in this country it's it's there the holocaust theme very beautifully and touchingly and not overdone and rather religiously is carried through to the quatermass conclusion okay what have i said i've said well there's this one theme in nigel neal's work about scientific explanations for superstitious or even religious realities and you have to just take that for what it's worth but the power of it and it comes most clearly in Quatermass in the Pit and in the uh, Quatermass Conclusion, where the world is seen as a place of deep division and terrible, tragic uh, animosity and malice between generations in this case. And that is happening. God knows that's happening in today's Internet generation. It just is. Um, Fear on the part of older people, paranoia and anxiety, and often a little bit of real frustration and irritation on the part of younger people at their parents and grandparents. Now, he got this. And why did he get it? He got it, this great thing, because he had an understanding of the human predicament. Remember in Wiley's work, when he angers the liberal clergyman whom I talked about from St. Bartholomew's, um, Sacco or Jocko Melton, he he angers him by saying, look, uh, Jocko, I believe in original sin. I believe in the power of the ego to destroy the human animal by its deeply entrenched psycholibidinal instinctual malice, which has to be dealt with and faced and not denied. And that is the great power of Nigel Neal's work. That is why he's able to understand things so well. Like I mentioned, as I mentioned from The Onion, that article that we saw in Mockingbird that... Uh, 
We now, you know, uh, scientists beg with uh, policymakers to uh, consult the past before they do new big things. Look at what happened the last time you did this before you do it again, because maybe you'll learn from what happened last time, what will happen this time. Well, that's what Nigel Neal understands. He understands what the human being is capable of doing, and he understands that science and technology are always moving more rapidly forward in new and uh, ways to curtail time and work. And he puts his understanding of media technology back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s with his understanding of human nature to come up with a very unpleasant and aggressive world in which finally the sort of loving old, the wiser older character has to save the impossible, clueless, but still very touching and aspiring young. So it touches the also the question of is there one or there two messages. It all has to do with this question of original sin and what we actually do, who we actually are. Now my footnote, and this is final on messianism, and I, I just want to say that, that you can predict the future on the basis of what's happened. In other words, Wiley and Neil, and there are others who've done this. Not, it's not a Nostradamus thing, although I don't know enough about him to comment, but I do know that writers like Orwell, who've understood so infallibly the way that the future has fallen, are people who have a dimmer view of humanity than idealists. And one of the problems, and this is a this is one uh, a problem in Christian theology, there's been certain times during the history of the Christian movement where people have focused too much on the second coming of Christ, or that is they focus completely on it. Things have been so bad that they focused on the messianic idea that Christ will come again and redeem and renew and create the kingdom on earth in some way, either before the, you know, pre- millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, all the different forms of that, because that's how you get caught up if you actually focus on this. Well, the problem with focusing on messianism, and I'm not saying it's not, he didn't say it, and I'm not saying I don't believe it, because I do at a fundamental level, but I don't at a, an empirical level. You cannot say uh, properly that I will, um, I will uh, predict the future based on something that has never happened yet. We believe that it will happen, and it's an article of our faith that it will happen. I speak here as a Christian. You may not uh, uh, relate at all, and that's fine, but it is relevant to anything that you think is going to happen that hasn't happened. In other words, if you think that America is going to get better, or you think that America will not have another fiscal crisis, or you think we're going to, quote, fix the banking system so this will never happen again, that is equivalent to a certain kind of messianism, which says, I know it's never happened before, but maybe, just maybe, hoping, 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 keep my fingers crossed, it'll happen next time. That is not the way these great uh, thinkers thought. They uh, said, if it hasn't happened hitherto, if so-and-so hasn't changed up till now, and I've known him for 40 years or 50 years, it is unlikely that she or he is going to change in the 51st year that I know him. You have to look at the future on the basis of what is, which is always tied into what has been. And so any kind of futuristic theology based upon an impression of what you want, if it actually hasn't happened before for whatever thousands or hundreds or decades prior to you, 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 you you're not really being anywhere near as accurate probably as someone like Nigel Neal who understood primevally the human predicament. He'd observed it. He was a sharpie. He understood. He had intelligence and he was able to see what the world was like and what it had been like and therefore he was able simply to project what he saw into the future but add technology and then you have prediction. Now that... 
is a powerful affirmation of the Christian understanding of human nature in the world, and it's a slight qualification of placing hope in something that has never happened and projecting it into the future, even though in an ultimate sense we do hold on to that hope because the power of love is always stronger ultimately and the power of sacrifice and the power of uh, the man on the cross is always ultimately very arresting and has had a tremendous number of, uh, of, of, of parallels in individual lives and even occasionally in nations movements, rarely but occasionally. So we can count on the power of love and the power of sacrifice, which ultimately undergirds the power of a God who's in charge of history, but don't make any kind of short-term predictions. Stick with Nigel Neal and uh, uh, the Quatermass conclusion from 1982 or the year of the Sex Olympics from 1968 or uh, Quatermass in the Pit from 1959. Listen and watch Andre Morel's speech, and you will be well served as you try to understand what's going to happen tomorrow in uh, Maitland, Florida, or uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland, or um, Metairie, Louisiana. That is your best bet. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I've enjoyed making it. God bless.